So, good evening. This evening I'd like to give a bit more context on the overall theme for this retreat, which some of you might remember or might not, but I titled it Finding the Heart of Wisdom. But before we go any further with that exploration, I just wanted to acknowledge that what I'm doing here is setting out a framework of some of the key teachings of the Buddha. And that's not done with the intention of trying to turn you into Buddhists, but instead with the hope that you can take whatever seems relevant, whatever seems useful, and whatever doesn't, you simply leave that aside. And I say that because in my own practice history, for probably a couple, maybe three decades, I was extremely wary of anything at all that invited us to turn our attention inwards. So anything psychological, no matter how secular it might be, mm -mm. anything, I couldn't even use the word spiritual without gagging. And as for Buddhism, well, I, I can't even begin to describe how much aversion I had, even to the idea of it. So... I still sometimes wonder how I've ended sitting up here. But the point of sharing that is just to say that if some of you might be feeling uncomfortable or a little bit wary about some of the language that I'm using or the ideas that I'm conveying, I can totally empathize. And by way of reassurance, the Buddha himself was not interested in trying to convert people. He wasn't trying to get followers. He didn't need to convince anyone that what he was saying was true. So some of you might know the famous Kalama Sutta, where a group of people came to the Buddha because they were confused by all the different teachers and sages and gurus who had been coming to their town and giving them totally conflicting teachings. And at the same time, claiming that their teachings were true and everything else was false. And I quoted this sutta the other night at our Southern Insight meeting, but I think it's worth hearing again in the actual words from the discourse. So the Kalama people went to the Buddha and complained that these teachers were how they would expound and glorify their own doctrines. But as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them and disparage them. They leave us absolutely uncertain and in doubt which of these venerable priests and contemplatives are speaking the truth and which ones are lying. So they ask the Buddha for advice and he tells them, of course you're uncertain, Kalamas, of course you're in doubt. When there are reasons for doubt, uncertainty is born. So in this case, Kalamas, don't go by reports, by legends, by tradition, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, are blameworthy, are criticized by the wise, that these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and to suffering, then you should abandon them. 
And then he continues, this time focusing on teachings that lead to benefit. And he says, Kalamas, when you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. So in other words, the Buddha is saying, don't believe anything just because it sounds good or because it's rational or traditional or popular or even because your own teacher is saying that it's true. Instead, investigate what qualities are being developed by these teachings. And if you see that they're harmful, then abandon them. Don't follow them. On the other hand, if you know directly in the context of your own life, that these teachings lead to welfare and happiness, then continue. So just to be clear, we're not taking anything on faith here. In fact, you're encouraged to do the opposite, to explore what's being offered during this retreat. Try it out in your own practice, in your own life, and only continue with it if it seems helpful And some of that you might not know until after the retreat, when you're back in your everyday lives. So in the meantime, I just encourage you to try to approach what's being offered here with what in the Zen tradition is known as beginner's mind. So this means not jumping too quickly to conclusions, not immediately rejecting what you don't understand, but just being willing to keep inquiring and exploring and investigating so that you can know for yourself what's worth following. Okay, so with that as a big kind of preamble, we can come back now to the retreat theme, which, as I said, is finding the heart of wisdom. And to me, that's about strengthening our capacity to experience freedom, no matter what life brings us. And thinking back to the year just gone, I think most of us could probably say that life brought us quite a lot in that last year. Most of us had to navigate all kinds of unexpected challenges, sometimes on many different levels simultaneously. And also, for some of us, the challenge might have been around feeling to be actually doing quite well even as people in other communities or other countries were really struggling. So for some of us at times, it might almost have felt a bit like a kind of survivor guilt to be feeling relatively okay when others were dealing with health challenges and financial issues, relationship challenges and mental and emotional distress. And that's on top of our society-wide challenges with the growing inequality and social oppression of all different kinds and the climate crisis. So there's a lot going on and we might wonder, well, what does it even mean to talk about freedom in this context? Might to some ears sound a bit naive or even disconnected from reality. So to be clear, the freedom that the Buddha's offering here is not some form of escapism. It's very much about being present with what is. In fact, with the full spectrum of what life brings us. 
which is sometimes referred to in the Taoist tradition as the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys. So freedom in the Buddha's teaching does not rely on our circumstances being a certain way in order for us to be happy. And this, for most of us, is pretty counterintuitive because most of us have been taught to believe in order to be happy, we just need to get X to happen, or Y to happen, or Z to happen, and then we'll be happy. So we put all of our effort into trying to change our external circumstances, trying to make them exactly the way we want them to be. Pleasant, satisfying, enjoyable. And it's true, sometimes we actually manage to achieve that for a little while. But because of the truth of impermanence, that state changes. And then we're back to square one, trying to get the next set of conditions and circumstances and even people to be the way we want them to be. So we can get the next hit of happiness and so on. And this is the same existential dilemma that the Buddha recognized all of those centuries ago in northern India. Because he too was a human being. So he too got caught up in this futile struggle. Until eventually, through deep investigation, he realized that the key to happiness was not about changing our external circumstances, but changing our inner relationship to them. And that this is where true freedom lies. Because none of us has the power to completely control our outer life situation. But what we do have is the power to change how we react to those situations. Now maybe that sounds quite simple in theory. But as I'm sure you all know in actual practice, it's not so easy. Because over our lifetimes we've developed some pretty strong habits of reactivity that tend to keep us caught in not-so-helpful patterns of either holding on to experiences or pushing them away. And often this is happening so reflexively, so automatically, that we don't even realize that we're acting out of those patterns until some form of suffering wakes us up. So what we're doing in this retreat is trying to bring more awareness to those default patterns that cause suffering so that we can begin to release them and in their place to strengthen the beneficial beneficial qualities of heart and mind such as generosity and kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, wisdom, to name just a few. Those qualities allow us to live more in alignment with our deeper aspirations, which in turn lets us taste that freedom from afflictive states that this path of practice is leading to. So there's one short phrase from the teachings that in some ways sums up that whole process. And that phrase is liberation through non-clinging. Liberation through non-clinging. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's fairly common. And I'd heard it many times 
earlier in my own practice. But it's taken me quite a while to understand the significance that it's pointing to. And in the beginning it sounded like just another one of those pithy Dharma statements, but it didn't have a lot of resonance. But relatively recently, as something <coughs> happens with these Dharma teachings, I heard that same phrase, I don't know, for maybe the 50th time, and this time it just went doing, and it started to make sense in a whole new way. So this phrase, liberation through non-clinging, is an entry into some of the key teachings of the Buddha that we're exploring here. And I like it because that one short statement includes both the goal of the teachings, which is liberation, and the means to get there through non-clinging. So this statement, in some ways, is shorthand for the Buddha's key teachings on the four noble truths. And it's this framework of the Four Noble Truths that shows us how to let go of what no longer serves and how to reconnect with our deeper aspirations and how to experience freedom no matter what life brings us. So I don't know if any of you, I think most of you have probably at least heard of these Four Noble Truths. So I'll give just a brief summary of them now. In fact, maybe we can do this pop quiz style just to see. So the first noble truth, any of you Buddhist geeks out there willing to name the first noble truth? Come on, shy Kiwis, you can do it. There is suffering. There is suffering, thank you. That's the traditional translation. First Noble Truth, there is suffering. Okay, let's share the load. Somebody else willing to name the second Noble Truth? Suffering comes from craving. Yeah, the cause of suffering is craving. Thank you. And the third Noble Truth? Yes, there's a way out of suffering. And the fourth one? That way is the Noble Eightfold Path. Thank you. So I'm not going to ask you to name the eight path factors now. I'll come back to them later. So just to say the word suffering uh, is, the Pali trans- is the English translation of the Pali word dukkha which is a little more nuanced, so it's not just suffering in the sense of anguish, but even more subtle levels of stress, distress, unease, existential uncertainty, and so on. So these Four Noble Truths might sound very simple, but fully understanding them, making the most of their transformative wisdom, is a lifetime project. So just to highlight now that what they're asking us to do is to look more carefully at our relationship to dukkha, stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness. So the first two truths acknowledge that there is dukkha and it has a cause. And the last two truths point out that it's possible to be free of dukkha and how to achieve that. And if you haven't heard these truths before, again, in my own experience, when I would first hear them, I'd feel quite discouraged. 
because it just sounded like a lot of talk about suffering. But this is partly because of the mind's inbuilt negativity bias, which modern neuroscience reckons as we recognizes that we have this inner tendency to pay a lot more attention to what's painful, difficult, stressful, and challenging than to what's pleasant and easeful and beneficial. So likewise, when we hear the Four Noble Truths, we can hear that it's all about suffering and lose sight of the fact that it's about the release of suffering on deeper and deeper levels, ultimately to the experience of Nibbana, which I mentioned the other night. I'm defining provisionally as a heart-mind that's completely free of greed, of hatred, of ignorance, of afflictive states of any kind. So fortunately, we don't need to wait for full awakening to experience any of the benefits of this practice. At every step along the way, we'll be developing the resources of kindness and compassion and so on, alongside calm and clarity. And these in themselves are experienced as pleasant, as conducive to happiness. So the initial step in that whole process of transformation is to understand dukkha. So I'd like to read you the Buddha's definition of this in the First Noble Truth. This is based on a translation by Tanasaro Bhikkhu. And Tanasaro Bhikkhu translates dukkha as stress. So it says, Now this, practitioners, is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair are stressful. Association with the unbeloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. So there's quite a lot in those few lines. And the description of dukkha begins with the most basic aspect, the physical reality of being human. Because we're born into a human body, we're subject to aging, to illness, to death. And none of us are immune to these processes. We're born, we get old, we die. On one level, this impermanence is utterly obvious but not many of us live with that understanding quite the opposite most of us live in as much denial of these facts as we can so I'll be coming back to that point later on but for now just want to name that the next level of dukkha in this definition of the first noble truth the Buddha moves on from the physical stress of having a body to the mental and psychological distress of being in the world, the sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair that we're all subject to at times, often brought on by not getting what we want, as the Sutta also says. And this definition of dukkha also includes the relational or social aspect because it refers to the stress of being separated from the people and the things we love or 
the stress of having to be with the people and things that we loathe. So even if we somehow manage to avoid illness, accident, other life challenges, I'm pretty sure most of us, maybe all of us, at some stage have experienced relational dukkha, or being separated from the loved, or having to associate with the unbeloved. And perhaps those of us who experienced lockdown might have had a very direct experience of that. Maybe not being able to be with some people or being forced to be with other people. So these are the relational aspects of dukkha. And again, already it's pretty comprehensive, but it almost seems like the Buddha thought, well, just in case I've missed anything out, I'm going to summarize this definition of dukkha. So it concludes with, in short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. So notice that term clinging. This is where the phrase liberation through non-clinging comes in. I'll unpack that statement just a little bit now. So in this concluding definition of the first noble truth, the Buddha is pointing us to five different aspects of experience that we tend to cling to and therefore suffer. So in a way he's presenting these five clinging aggregates as shorthand for dukkha as a whole. I won't do another pop quiz because this is getting a bit, <laughs> a bit more technical now. But in short, the five clinging aggregates are material form, which includes our bodies, feeling tone, those of you who know the Satipatthana Sutta, that's the second foundation of mindfulness, knowing whether something's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The third one is perceptions. The fourth is volitional mental formations. And the fifth is consciousness. So there might be a few glazed eyes there, because these are pretty technical terms. I'm not going to go into them now in detail. I'll be coming back to them as the retreat unfolds. Because what I want to do tonight is to focus on the clinging aspect of them. Remembering that clinging, I'm using as a kind of umbrella term for any kind of grasping, craving, getting caught up in, or identifying with experience. So taking it personally, making it all about me and who I am. And remembering, too, that clinging also includes the opposite energy, any form of resistance to experience. So pushing away, rejecting, avoiding, denying. So in many ways, clinging is any kind of reactivity at all, either for or against, on gross, intense levels and on really more subtle and refined levels. So the opposite of clinging is what all of this practice is aiming for, is release. So release refers to letting go, to allowing, to letting be, to non-entanglement, non-grasping. And this release happens on deeper and deeper levels, ultimately leading all the way to the release of nibbana or awakening. So as I've been exploring all this in my own practice, I sometimes condense these four noble truths 
into just these two aspects, two movements, two fundamental experiences of clinging and relief. Sometimes it's that simple. In any moment, are we clinging or is there relief? And that's what we were exploring this afternoon in that very first uh, session of Insight Dialogue. Just noticing these movements directly in the body. Noticing the subtle, or maybe not so subtle, tension, tightness, contraction that comes when we're holding onto or resisting something. And then the opposite, beginning to recognize on the most basic bodily level the absence of clinging and resistance and what that feels like, the direct experience of these moments of release. Okay, so let's check. How are your energy levels? You got a bit more reserve in there? Yes? No? Maybe? Great. If you're really nodding at any point, feel free to stand to refresh the energy. I'm impressed. This is the first full day of a retreat, so happy to hear you have a little bit more energy because I'd like to give you just, if you can deal with it, another list for framework. And you don't need to take all this in. You don't need to memorize it. You don't need to make sense of it in one hit. I might post some of these on the board for reference so you can come back to if it's helpful. But now that we've touched into the first noble truth in our embodied experience, I'd like to jump to the fourth noble truth because it lays out a very holistic path of practice and it's made up of eight factors which is why it's known as the noble eightfold path. And these eight factors, they cover not only our meditation practice on the cushion but everything else that we engage with during our waking hours which for most of us is a lot more time than we spend in formal meditation. And here on this retreat, as I was emphasizing earlier, we're trying to reduce that hierarchy that tends to privilege sitting meditation as being the practice and diminishes everything else. But in light of the Noble Eightfold Path, we want to include all of our daily activities in our practice. So not just what happens in here, but when we're doing our mindfulness jobs, when we're speaking and listening in insight dialogue, when we're in our small group practice discussions, when we're showering and eating and taking care of the body. So no matter what we're doing, either on the cushion or out there, we have the opportunity to be strengthening one or more of these eight path factors. So they're usually translated as right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi. Anybody never heard of those eight before? Great. So you're in good company. So this... To begin with, just to say a little bit about this word right, that each of the path factors is prefaced with. 
So right is the usual English translation of the Pali word summer. And in some ways, like many of these translations, it's slightly unfortunate. Because when you think of the word right in English, what comes with it in the background? Wrong. Yeah, right, wrong, good, bad, success, failure, and so on. So it tends to bring with it flavors of this very binary, dualistic, or even moralistic thinking. But according to Gil Fransel, who's also a Pali translator, he says this word sama can also mean proper, complete, and in harmony. So when right is a translation, it's useful to think of it as meaning appropriate. For example, when we speak of having the right tool for the job. And he says, because this path is made up of practices rather than beliefs, right does not refer to a truth that we're obliged to adopt or to moralistic judgments of right and wrong. So I think it's important to keep this in mind when we come to the first path factor, which is right view, because that can sound just a little bit authoritarian. Instead, we can think of it as appropriate view or wise view, because wise view conveys that sense that what we're cultivating here is intended to lead to wisdom. So there are many different nuances to right or wise view. And one definition of it is understanding all of the Buddha's teachings. So yes, that could sound a little bit daunting, but a very practical, basic definition is that it's about understanding what leads to harm and to suffering and what leads away from harm and suffering to ease, to peace, to freedom. So that's an example of wise view and wise action. Thank you for rescuing that creature. So in the context of this retreat, we can keep wise view in mind whenever we're going about our day and we have a choice to make. Do we choose to come into the hall or to take a nap? And depending on the circumstances, sometimes it might be wise to take the nap. Other times, we're just acting out of old habit. So we can just bring to mind, what is the skillful choice here? In the short term, the medium term, the long term, what is best going to serve me? And what say we check our email? Just one little check won't hurt. And we get an email from someone that says they really need us to do something at 6.30, 7 o'clock. 7.30. Mm, that's when the Dharma talk is. Mm, okay, is there somewhere around here where can I just take that call? And then we get all tangled up and what's the skillful thing to do here? So again, with the understanding of wise view, do we just automatically do that call or go to the opposite, automatically ignore it? What is skillful? And again, it depends on circumstances. So depending on what that person was asking us to do, at some point, perhaps they just experienced a sudden bereavement and it felt like the wise thing to just have a 15-minute call and then say, I'll come back to you at the end of the week. 
So just pointing to those examples that none of this is hard and fast, and this is where wisdom comes in. We're training and seeing what happens when I check my emails, what happens when I make a call, what happens when I take a nap. And then those results feed back into our understanding for next time. So right or wise view means that we understand that our actions have consequences. They affect our meditation practice, they potentially affect our co-meditators, they affect who we interact with in the world. And so wise view ties into the next path factor, which is wise intention, sometimes translated as right thought or right resolve. And again, this term right thought can sound pretty off-putting, think this way or else, like George Orwell, 1984. But this is actually the opposite of what this path factor is about. So that's why I prefer to translate it as right intention or wise intention. And it's quite specifically defined in this context. The Buddha defined it in terms of three specific intentions. The first one is the intention to renunciation or relinquishment or simplicity. The second is the intention of goodwill, of universal friendliness, of metta. And the third is the intention of harmlessness, non-harming, as we were committing to the other night, which is also interpreted as compassion. So the intention of wise intention is to overcome the opposite, to overcome wrong intention. So it's to reduce greed through practicing simplicity. It's to reduce aversion through practicing kindness. And it's to reduce cruelty by orienting to non-harming and compassion. So again, in those examples I just gave, that hypothetical idea of getting a text message or a phone call from someone who just experienced a bereavement in that context, right or wise intention, the intention of compassion, might trump, so to speak, the need to be here in the hall. So again, these are not black and white, clear cut. But we try to notice what is our intention as we're about to do something. What's our intention or motivation while we're doing it? And then when we've done it, what was the effect? Did it strengthen clarity, calm, compassion, kindness, and so on? Or not? If it did, great. If it didn't, then that's useful information. The next time we have to make a choice. So, wise view and wise intention work together to reinforce our understanding that actions have consequences and that the quality of our hearts and minds directly affects how we behave in the world. And because of that understanding, when that wisdom is there, we naturally want to be orienting the heart-mind in the right direction, the direction of kindness and compassion. So this supports the development of the next path factor, which is right or wise speech. 
at least have a relationship to the precepts because now we're in the ethical aspects of this path. So right or wise speech on the most basic level means not lying, being committed to honesty, being committed to telling the truth. It also includes abstaining from slanderous speech, from harsh speech, and from idle chatter or frivolous chatter. There's a lot we could explore there. But for now, just to highlight that the truth that the Buddha was speaking of here, it's not just factual truth. It's much more nuanced than that. So sometimes in some of the cultures that I teach in, people have a sense of, I was just speaking my truth as if something, because it's factually true, gives us a right or even entitled to speak that regardless of the impact. But that's not what the Buddha is talking about here. So we want to be aware of context, of who we're speaking to, when we're speaking, how we're speaking, so that we're not misusing the truth as a weapon to harm others. So this is something we can explore in the relational practice later in the retreat. But as I was saying earlier, just last night, we can also explore right or wise speech in terms of our inner dialogue and to have that refined sensitivity to how do we speak to ourselves. Is it harsh? Is it true? And again, in my own experience, there was a phase where I started to really notice that inner dialogue. And I was shocked to hear how much of what I told myself was partially true, vaguely true, often wasn't as true as I was telling myself it was. So just to look at that, not in a moralistic way, but if we can, with lightness, with humor. So right speech is about our verbal action, our verbal expression, and the next path factor is right or wise action. And this refers to our bodily expression, our behavior in the world. And again, because of the foundation of wise view and wise intention, what makes wise action wise is that it's grounded in non-harming. So every aspect of the Buddhist teachings shares this fundamental orientation to non-harming. Non-harming of others and of ourselves. And these two are uh, um, inseparable. Because of the understanding of cause and effect, if we harm others, we're automatically also harming ourselves. So again, the actual definition of wise action is quite specific. It's to abstain from taking life, to abstain from taking what is not given, and to abstain from sexual misconduct. Any of that sound familiar? What we committed to last night with the first three of those training precepts. And as I said last night, as our understanding of wise action becomes more and more refined, it starts to move in the positive direction, not simply refraining from killing living beings, but actively working for the welfare of all. And this is then refined in the next of the 
past factors, which is right or wise livelihood. How we earn our living on its most basic level, but beyond that, how our lifestyles more generally. So for lay people, we're asked to make our living through legal means, honestly, without trickery, without deceit, and again, in ways that don't harm ourselves or others. And then by extension, it includes every aspect of our lifestyle. So what we consume and what we produce. So again, it's grounded in wise view and wise intention. And again, it can be refined to look, for example, how does our lifestyle impact that environment? How does it impact non-human beings? And again, here on this retreat, we're practicing wise livelihood because I'm guessing most of us are living a simpler life than we do normally. We're not running around, probably consuming less, we're doing less, we're having less impact on the planet, at least for these next six days or so. So that's something we can explore more fully outside of the retreat. But now we come to the last three path factors, which are the meditatives. So these are three path factors that specifically relate to our meditation practice. So the first of these last three is right or wise effort. And this is about the wise application of energy of effort in our meditation practice. Though, of course, we also need it in daily life, too. But in terms of this as a path factor, again, there's quite a specific definition of it. And it's to do with looking at mind states, qualities of mind. So there are actually four components to this. So all of these, you can get this sense of fractal geometry that there's this and then there's within that and then there's within that, all these different lists within lists. So apologies if your mind's starting to get a bit boggled at this point. But as I said, I'll try and put this up as a diagram perhaps tomorrow. So wise effort has four aspects. The first aspect is to let go of unskillful mental states. So the first one is to prevent unskillful mental states from coming up in the first place. But if they do, the second one is to help them release. And then the third one is to help skillful mental qualities to arise. And then when they do, to help deepen and prolong and fulfill them. So that's exactly what we're doing on this retreat. Every meditation session, we're learning how to release the unskillful and strengthen the skillful. And in support of that, we have the seventh one, which is right or wise mindfulness. Again, sati in Pali, and we've already been exploring that earlier today. Presence of mind that knows what we're doing as we're doing it without reactivity. So just to briefly touch in, because these days mindfulness has become pretty seriously mainstream. And as I sometimes name, there's even a mindfulness Barbie doll these days. 
and she now has legs that fold so that she can sit in the lotus position. <laughs> so the idea of it is to help teenage girls deal with anxiety. And if it does that, that's great. I'm not wanting to be too cynical. But just using that as an example of how mainstream mindfulness has become. And so in this context, in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path, what makes wise mindfulness wise is that it's supported by wise view. So it's done with the intention of strengthening wisdom and compassion in the service of deep freedom. And likewise, with the final path factor of right or wise samadhi, which as I mentioned is usually translated as concentration, and I'm trying to steer away from that term, just because of those connotations of narrow, fixed, forced attention. Because usually that results in the mind getting pretty tight and energetically disturbed. And that gets in the way of true samadhi, which actually comes from relaxing, from releasing, from letting go whatever is in the way. And then we experience unification of mind, complete non-distractability. And when these states of samadhi are attained, they can be pretty pleasurable. But again, what makes them right or wise is that they're developed in the service of wisdom, not as an end in themselves. So, that's a brief overview. Congratulations, you made it to the end of the Noble Eightfold Path. I just wanted to give you a taste of what's included, because some of you aren't so familiar with these teachings, and we can build on them in future talks. And just to point out that the path that the Buddha's laid out here is very comprehensive. It includes all aspects of our lives. And I want to highlight that because in the way the, these teachings have come to the West, from, to the West so far, at least in terms of lay practice, not monastic practice, we've tended to put a lot more emphasis on the meditative aspects of the past and quietly ignore all the rest of the context. So we put a lot of emphasis on mindfulness and samadhi. But we need all eight of these path factors to be equally well developed to get the most benefit from this practice and to taste that ease and happiness and freedom that all of this is leading to. So just touching back on where I started this talk with, feel free to take in or take on only those parts of tonight's talk that made sense to you. And if anything didn't yet make sense, then leave it aside. Because this theme of finding the heart of wisdom is about finding your heart, your wisdom. It's not just taking on what someone else has said. So, that said, thank you for your attention and for your stamina at the end of a long, full day of practice. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Just to let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.